Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. Today's episode is sponsored by the Program on Law, Communities, and the Environment at the University of Virginia School of Law. With me today is Jenny Kendler, an artist and activist whose work focuses on climate change and biodiversity loss. She is the artist in residence with the Natural Resources Defense Council, and her work has been exhibited nationally and internationally at museums, biennials, public spaces, and natural areas. Hi, Jenny. Thanks so much for joining me today. Um, Hi, Mike. It's a pleasure to be with you. So I thought we might begin by discussing some of some of your uh, works over the past few years. Um, there's just like so much really rich and fascinating art that you've created. Uh, and of course, a podcast is a bit of a tricky medium for art, but uh, we'll include links in the description so that listeners can uh, get a visual sense as well. Um, maybe one that, you know, we could just kind of get started with is Amber Archive. Uh, which is something that um, a, a work that is ongoing and I guess still still available to, to be seen. Um, maybe you could just describe for us a little bit kind of what we're what we're seeing here and and, and we could go from there. Sure. Um, so the Amber Archive is, as you say, it's an ongoing series of works that are being created. Um, and essentially, I arrived at the idea by thinking about how, Unfortunately, as we all know, that um, so many species are currently under threat because of all sorts of human activities. So whether this be anthropogenically driven climate change, habitat loss, um, you know, oil and gas expansion. Um, and there is these numbers that say that we might be on track to lose 50 percent of species on the planet by 2100. And so in this sort of worst case scenario, which, you know, hopefully we will um, avert, but in this worst case scenario, you could imagine some kind of far future where we might be interested in undoing the harm that we've done. And there actually exist in the scientific community quite a number of efforts to preserve the DNA of these threatened species, whether they be, you know, crustaceans, corals, um, birds, um, vegetal plants. So um, they, but they preserve the DNA, and it's this very high tech sort of initiative um, where you know, uh, genetic samples are kept at deep freeze temperatures, which is very energy intensive. And of course, um, it's also, you know, sensitive to any kind of disruption in the power grid. So I wanted to imagine a sort of ancient and more analog way that we have to preserve DNA. Um, and which, you know, this is embedded in the popular imagination, this idea that we can use uh, tree resin or essentially amber, or in this case, proto-amber, um, to preserve genetic specimens. And so I essentially made, um, like I say, proto-amber or pre-amber or, um, you know, what is in the process of becoming amber thousands of years from now um, in my home studio and embedded inside of it fragments of biological material that were all ethically obtained um, some with some with the help of, help of biologists um, from a variety of threatened species. Um, so it's, you know, scale, wing, leaf, seed, bone, um, from countless different creatures with the idea that this both provides some sort of potentially viable, um, archive of genetic material for some far future in which it was both feasible and ethical to bring back these creatures. Cause I we could actually have a whole conversation on why I don't think that what people call de-extinction is an ethical move at this moment. Um, but it also creates this beautiful, haunting visual um, experience of what it is that we stand to lose in the midst of the sixth extinction. Yeah, it's, it really is. As you said, it's very, it is very haunting. And it's, it's such an interesting relationship to time that the, that the piece um, kind of draws out in the, in the, in, in the viewer, right? So there's a, it's an archive of a moment in time, like now and species that, you know, what it of course calls to mind is, uh, the, the, this future perspective of looking back at now, <laughs> you know, where now is, is, is deep time. Now is deep history, um, that perspective. And to say, you know, th- I mean, there's just so much going on and kind of saying, look there, we will regret this, <laughs> you know, that we're making decisions now that, um, from that future perspective, we will say, um, we will regret, we will think that we made a, uh, that there was a terrible loss 
And this is maybe even a loss that we might seek to undo. But of course, as you know, with the with respect to de-extinction, there's always something irretrievable um, in in that loss. And of course, it also puts us in mind of of fossils. And you mentioned, you know, the the popular culture kind of Jurassic Park <laughs> idea. Um, but of course, we we have fossils. We have lots of remains of other versions of the planet that have existed. Um, prior, prior to, to us. Um, and so, so yes, it's, so all of that, as you said, that seemed to be in, in mind when you, when you conceived of the piece and then, and then you kind of executed it from there. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate that you bring up deep time. That's actually, um, something that often is a feature of my work. So I'm really interested in proposing, you know, work that might be very explicitly contemporary and that it relates to the political moment as we are in now, um, with some sense of urgency, but oftentimes is also considering the much grander sweep of time and wanting us to remember that, um, in terms of geologic time, this moment that we live in is actually quite brief. Um, so I have, you know, work that thinks about ancient history that proposes something far into the future. Um, right. And as you mentioned, what I hope that it does in the mind of the viewer is, is is help us to imagine how we might feel looking back on this moment when we still have time to make some changes. Um, and also, you know, you mentioned you mentioned Jurassic Park, which some people do bring up with this project. I have to tell you that actually that was not, in fact, my inspiration for the piece. Um, I honestly don't even know that I've seen the movie, um, despite being, I guess, a kid of that generation. Um, but certainly what I was looking at was all of this, you know, great variety of scientific research that has gone on around Amber and these sort of extraordinary finds such as, um, you know, when someone um, in, you know, fairly recent history has found a dinosaur feather embedded in Amber or other types of um, species that provide this record of deep time in like a much more um, high resolution in all senses than you can get from the uh, traditional fossil record. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I know it's, it's funny, the Jurassic Park thing. It's just, you know, some of these, these cultural touchstones, they just, they they can become overwhelming um, in, in their, in their influence. Um, the pieces are so beautiful, right? They're, they're aesthetically pleasing. Um, you know, they're, they're these dif- different kinds of plant and animal material encapsulated in this kind of beautiful amber, you know, uh, colored, I mean, it's, I guess it's amber <laughs> or proto amber. And, um, when you were when you were working on this project and kind of executing it, how much of a what's the balance, I guess, uh, in in your mind, or what are you thinking about, like at the level of making the piece in terms of the the aesthetics and and what what it's ultimately going to look like? Because obviously it's very very conceptual as well. And how do you balance that kind of the the aesthetic demands in the process of creation with the with the conceptual um, uh, element that you're trying to get across? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And certainly um, for me, um, you know, other artists approach this in, in different ways. But um, for me, I like to say that like um, art does not need to be ugly in order to look uh, intelligent or intellectually engaged or to show that it has a conceptual point of view. It is actually, in my practice, extremely important to engage with aesthetics, both because that is where a lot of the pleasure of the making comes from for myself, you know, and I have a deep and engaged um, history with aesthetics and with with art history that I want to be in dialogue with. Um, But I also think that, um, you know, it's uh, it's a gateway for people. Right. And so because my work oftentimes has all of these layers in it, you know, I'm maybe referencing specific scientific white papers. I might be, um, you know, thinking about, um, you know, art history or theory. Um, but I also am really interested in having like a wide open gateway for anyone to feel like they have a point of entry. And I oftentimes think that aesthetics can be that gateway. Hmm. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, so just maybe to move on to a, another, um, piece that just, I found super fascinating also appears to be ongoing as well is the, the underground library. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, maybe you could just explain a little bit about about um, what's going on with that with that project. Yeah, so the Underground Library um, uh, came out of a collection of books that I made over the course of about a year. 
um, which the idea is to create essentially a library um, composed primarily of discards and unread books that encompasses the history of um, nonfiction works on climate change. So this is everything from Bill McKibben's earliest book, um, Donella Meadows' Limits to Growth, um, you know, in the 70s and early 80s, um, goes through the 90s where we see the books all having the words global warming and conflating it with, um, you know, the threat of nuclear winter or the, um, you know, hole in the ozone. And we sort of see a history of how the movement around climate changes up until the contemporary moment. You know, I have books in there everywhere from the Sunrise Movement to Naomi Klein's recent books. Um, and so what I was really interested in doing is both like giving a historical survey of where, um, you know, uh, we've we've looked for information on on, on climate and, and also thinking about how all of these authors who are sort of pouring their life's work into this, whether they be, you know, um, cultural theorists, writers, scientists, activists. There's even some lawyers. I saw there's a the climate change law book is, a, is amongst the books that you collected. Absolutely. There's very, you know, there's technical manuals on, um, you know, specific areas of law or, um, you know, of uh, global politics. But um, mostly what I was interested in sort of saying about this is that many of these books like quite literally went unread. So not only do we sort of say like as a, you know, as a society, we didn't heed the message, um, but that actually like many of these books were discarded from libraries with, um, you know, their, their old school uh, library cards unstamped. Um, and so um the, you know, the, the, my interest here is twofold, which is that I'm sort of thinking about how do I both like mark and honor this unread history, um, maybe memorialize these books where the books have already themselves kind of become graves for these unread words. Um, and also try to think about proposing some uh, remediation, essentially, in this case. And so the, the work is called um, underground library. Um, and I'll get back to that, though, to why in a minute. Um, but in order to create the works, what I do essentially is burn the books. Um, and that's what you're seeing in these images is these beautiful, delicately charred black um, books where, you know, in some cases you can still read the ink on the page in this contrast between like a shinier and less shiny area, which I think is really lovely. Um, but this is not a traditional form of burning. I'm doing what's called biochar, which is a process that's used in um, agriculture or in other fields um, to take essentially material that has carbon in it and through the process of pyrolyzation, which is a low or no oxygen form of burning, um, actually um, turn that into this extremely stable form of carbon, um, which can then be sequestered in the earth um, you know, uh, e.g. taken out of the carbon cycle. So what I'm doing with these books is because they themselves are made out of, of course, trees, which we know, you know, if a tree biodegrades in the forest, <laughs> does it make an impact on climate change? Um, <laughs> yeah, in fact, it does, right? So even though these are natural parts of the um, carbon cycle, you know, um, and would would have been there despite any human interference, um, you know, any time that biological material degrades and releases carbon into the atmosphere, that's actually um, could in theory be increasing, um, you know, the the overburden of, of um, greenhouse gases. However, you can take that material out of the carbon cycle by doing something called sequestration. And so in this case, that's what I'm doing with these um, with these books is at the conclusion of each exhibition, and they've been exhibited a number of times at different um, museums or venues, um, we find a spot where they then become buried at the end of the exhibition. And that's sort of the arc of the project. So it's not just the books being displayed. It's not just the list of the titles, which I think, you know, oftentimes are evocative, um, but it's this act of burying them. And then again, with this deep time perspective, you know, many thousands of years, that carbon will still have been removed from the carbon cycle. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a, it's, it's like, it's a hopeful project. It's a sad project. I mean, the, the idea of a book sitting in the library for, you know, who knows how long without a single person 
checking it out as someone who's written a couple of books that's just like the saddest thing that i can that i can imagine and especially of course in the context that you're describing of you know folks uh you know uh, i mean these are very important messages very important scientific or political messages about the um about climate change and what we can do about it and so so there is something very sad about about the state of these books and as you said just kind of um uh, graveyards of ideas uh, sitting in the library. But then again, something hopeful of resuscitating them, getting the ideas out uh, into public circulation, at least in, in, in their higher points, the titles and the main ideas. And then, yeah, this idea of, of in a sense, um, heeding the message uh, out of these books, if, if only in a, in a, in a, in a small way, um, I guess, and, any individual act is, is going to be small in the context of climate change with this idea that there's going to, there will be a long-term positive uh, benefit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's also something in here that, um, you know, there's a sense of humor about the idea of inverting a book burning, um, you know, which mm -hmm. I'd love to say uh, as an idea from the far past, but as you can see, um, you know, we continue to have uh, books banned in the United States. And I'm not sure at the moment those are books around climate, but certainly there was a very vigorous climate denial movement that although mostly discredited at this point still exists. Um, and so the idea of sort of like, um, you know, taking and recasting the idea of what a book burning might mean as something to actually, um, you know, honor, memorialize and shine light on these words. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, and absolutely correct. The, um, right, the resonance with today's current um, debates over banning books and, and the like, and, and climate discourses you know, is absolutely part of that. There are, there are places um, politically in the States where uh, it, it isn't okay to talk about climate change. It's not um, a, a path to getting your voice heard and, and, you know, where, where state officials are, are asked not to talk about climate change or climate science gets censored out of official reports. So, so absolutely. That's not a, um, that's not a far removed form from the contemporary environment. And again, as you noted, the, the books are really arresting looking. There's something kind of beautiful about them. Um, they're very destroyed, <laughs> um, right there, but they're also, you know, you know, there, there's something about the, 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 the physicality of it, the, the color, the deep kind of black, um, charcoal color that they have that, that is quite arresting. Yeah. They're destroyed, but they're also preserved. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, so another uh, uh, piece, um, uh, I don't know if you consider it a series or uh, related pieces are, um, um, that have gotten an enormous amount of attention are the birds watching and, and bewilder, both of which involve, um, uh, you know, these kind of natural images that, that are integrated into different environments. So maybe you could just describe those a little bit and then, uh, yeah, we could talk about those as well. Sure. Yeah. So the, the Bewilder project um, uses butterfly and moth um, eye spots, which are not their eyes, um, but are, are uh, decorative camouflage marks that, um, that the, the um, moths or butterflies use to evade predators. So to appear more um, threatening or to um, engage in this form of um, camouflage that is referred to as daymatic camouflage, which essentially means like a startle camouflage. Um, the idea being that you could have a very cryptic looking butterfly that has, you know, um, grays and browns on the outside up against a tree and then were a bird to approach quote, too closely, they might flash their wings open and startle mm -hmm. the predator with these um, these eye spots that make them look much larger, fiercer or different species than they actually are. So I started to think um, and this this piece was this piece was created a number of years ago, but I started to think about this idea of um, how we humans might uh, might use uh Daymatic camouflage and um, what you what happens in this piece is wherever it's installed is there's this patterned wallpaper that becomes this kind of um, you know horror vacui this overwhelming pattern of eye spot upon eye spot upon eye spot in every different color and is really um, both like um, both overwhelming but does become this like repetitive field um, mm -hmm. and then the visitors to the you know museum or other venue are asked 
to uh, pose for a portrait in front of that, where they're both covering their body with a cloth, cloth with the same print, and also are invited to use temporary tattoos on their faces to actually um, apply these eye spots um, to themselves. And um, what I discovered at the time was that this disrupts facial recognition technology. So I was very inspired by activists who have published guides that would tell you like what types of makeup you could put on um, to disrupt facial recognition mm -hmm. technology. You know, were you in a crowd situation and were worried about being tracked by government surveillance? And I wanted to think about how we as human beings might be able to benefit from some sort of anonymity or camouflage online. And so it was an invitation for people to essentially take selfies or portraits of themselves and then be able to post them anonymously by using this, you know, bio biomimicry or strategy from the natural world. Um, then birds watching um, also uses eyes, but in this case, the literal eyes of birds. Um, it's a 40 foot sculpture that um, exists in um, two and soon to be three versions um, that uh, depicts a hundred eyes of birds that are all threatened or endangered by climate change. Um, they're, cu they're cutouts that sort of seem to float in this, um, this flock almost, um, and they're printed um, on a highly reflective material that's used for road signs so that when they are hit by light, especially in these like, you know, beautiful low light conditions, they appear to glow back at you. Um, this was partly inspired by my coming across um, you know, birds in a, in a um, night spotting situation where, you, you know, if you're uh, passionate, a bird watcher like I am, you know, if you want to go and look at night, you hold a, hold a light up next to your eyes. And then if you're lucky enough to see a bird, you know, the light bounces off their retinas and you get sort of transfixed by this, um, you know, look of another and so I want to, um, yeah, emphasize that this is this piece is not called bird watching. It's not about us looking at them, though. It's called birds watching, as in birds watching us, and really is about the gaze being returned back upon us and the different ways that we might choose to encounter what that gaze means when we know that um, our species is responsible for potentially um, pushing these other species off the planet. How were the birds selected that you chose? Um... Uh, for the for that particular piece, yeah. So in each case, they're um, they're chosen in a different way. Um, in the f the first one, which was created for the Storm King Art Center in 2018, which is a really fabulous sculpture park north of New York City in the Hudson Valley, um, that was using um, Audubon's really remarkable report mm -hmm. on climate threatened and endangered birds. Um, and so in that case, it's all North American species. The second version was created for the Eden Project in Cornwall in the UK. And so then I worked with their ornithologist to um, revise and update the list with birds from the UK and the EU. Um, and this third version that I'm actually in process of um, working on right now, in fact, I was working on a little bit this morning, um, is for the Hayward Gallery in London, where it will be installed essentially over the Waterloo Bridge and hopefully visible to millions of people, which is astonishing to think about. Um, and that I was working with the um, Zoological Society of London, which is really, a, you know, a fabulous international conservation based not for profit. That's one of the world's oldest, if not the world's oldest research zoo. Um, and they do very important conservation work. So they help to, you know, quite literally keep birds back from the brink of extinction. And so we focused on a number of the species there that, you know, some of them are extinct in the wild and their populations exist only in captivity. Um, and so we wanted to really highlight the amazing conservation work that the zoo is doing. Hmm. Yeah, it's really powerful. And the, yeah, this idea that the kind of eyes are, are looking back at you and... Um, and yeah, that these are species that are seriously affected by, um, by human activities. Um, and so when you're, um, or when you were conceiving or even when you, when you look at the piece now, I mean, obviously people are going to have different, different reactions. Um, but I could certainly imagine a kind of accusatorial gaze coming back, um, from this, you know, the, the, the suite of eyes that are kind of, um, disembodied and staring back to you back at you from the landscape was, was that part of the idea is for for to kind of shock people into uh into a sense of responsibility or 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 what was what was your thinking vis-a-vis -vis that that kind of 
that, that reaction that I, I would imagine is at least somewhat common. Yeah. Well, Mike, um, in this particular case, well, I'm, I'm always, the, I'm, I'm always happy to write about my work and to share the way that I feel like the work might be interpreted. Um, but in this particular case, I think I'm going to lean back on that old artist's adage, which is that it's really up for the viewer's interpretation. Um, certainly, uh, you know, one might encounter the sense of feeling accused by these birds, but it's really um, my goal to allow that, that the nature of that gaze to be expansive and shifting so that we might go through imagining this sort of accusatory stare um, or a, like a gaze of castigation. But at the same time, we might be able to imagine one of um, communion or camaraderie or even love. So the, that, that connection doesn't have to be um, simplistic because actually when we are in true relationality with um, other beings, the nature of that relationship can be quite complex. And I think that, you know, at least for myself, I feel a number of different emotions at the same time. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. It's really, I mean, that's 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 a that's the beauty of art, right? Is that there's many many interpretations, and and that's the goal in some sense. Um, I mean, you you could even say forgiveness, right? There's lots of different ways that you could look at I could look at something like that. Yeah, um, just to uh, take back uh, for a second to with with bewilder the the. Um, the relationship of kind of seeing and being seeing is just really interesting there. Like in the, on the one hand, um, as you mentioned with, with Bewilder and the, and the project um, uh, with the, um, with the eye spots, um, you know, that, that in some sense is about not being seen. It's about camouflage. It's about hiding from a kind of technological gaze. Um, at least, you know, that's kind of part, part of the story that, that you were telling. And then in this other um uh, and the other project, birds watching, it's almost um, you can imagine someone feeling seen by the landscape in a way that they're not accustomed to. To say, "Wow, I, I feel visible before all these eyes." I'm kind of decamouflaged in a way that's that's potentially um, uh, kind of disruptive to uh, in a, in, a, in a positive way. It can could lead to new ways of of thinking of myself. Yeah, that's a good point. I think in both of these cases, what I'm interested in is sort of troubling this other, this um, more generic or more assumed uh, type of the, the gaze, you know, as we discuss in, um, you know, the history and theory of art, um, you know, it, it formerly and through the sort of like academy in Western art, the idea was of the, you know, in this case, generally like wealthy, white, educated male viewer, um, gazing upon and sort of essentially consuming the subject of the painting. Um, and, uh, you know, Manet famously reverses this with his um, painting Olympia, where, she, you know, the subject in that case then sort of um, gazes back out at the viewer and confronts them. Um, and certainly in, in my work, what I'm interested in is like really creating some complexity around that relation um, because, the real thesis of all of my work is to try to disrupt the idea of human exceptionalism. And so that, that sort of primary mode of art viewing, the idea of like a single educated white male viewer consuming the artwork is like sort of at the heart of what I think is problematic in um, the way that art itself can prop up human exceptionalism. And so um, proposing that there are these many different modalities that we might like um, be gazed upon by other different types of beings and that the gaze might be reciprocal, um, that we might feel um, small within this like web of relationships. I actually think that that's tremendously important. And that sort of feeling of um, being set back into the landscape uh, really can help to sort of undo this terrible poison of human exceptionalism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really, it's really, really, really interesting. Um, so, so another piece is, I think, maybe slightly differently themed, um, 
but particularly interesting um, for folks um, in my part of the world. I'm, I'm obviously I'm, I'm talking from the University of Virginia, which is in Charlottesville. Um, you spent part of your youth in um, not that far away from here in Richmond, Virginia. Um, and the piece that I'm, um, you know, that I was just thinking about right now is studies for bioremediation, um, which is a series of photo, series of photo collages, and. Um, and there's a relationship to Richmond uh, there. So maybe just you could explain a little bit about what, what's going on with that with those pieces. Yeah. Well, firstly, I'm really happy to be talking with a fellow Virginian. The you know beauty and character of that state is certainly lodged deep within my psyche. And I sometimes feel a little out of place here in the Midwest where it is flat as a pancake, thanks to all of those um, tens of thousands of years of being scrubbed by glaciers. So I miss my forested hills for sure. Um, but so the, that piece you're talking about, um, the studies for bioremediation, um, and then it's a parenthetical that says kudzu, which of course is a plant that we classically associate with the South, despite it being um, what's termed a, quote, invasive species um, from Asia. So um, that work talks about the idea of, um, of monuments, which, um, you know, I think we now have seen in every form of media, thankfully, being discussed, the problematic nature of the way that we construct monuments in general, and then specifically um, the monuments uh, that represented um, uh, Southern Confederate generals that tended to be actually, you know, put up many years after the Civil War and were in fact about sort of reinforcing um, Jim Crow ideals and actually directly oppressing Black folks. So, um, in my hometown, Richmond, Virginia, I remember being a small child and going downtown to Monument Avenue and trying to understand why these statues of the people that I, I had, um, you know, thankfully learned enough about in, in social studies to realize were maybe um, not on the right side of history, we'll say. Um, why, were they, why were they memorialized um, in our city streets. And I remember also the struggle around getting um, Arthur Ashe's statue put up on, um, on Monument Boulevard. So um, as this conversation started to be raised in the public dialogue about what should be done with, we, with these memorials, um, there was this, this question that kept being raised about how do, we, um, how do we discredit these people as heroes? How do we stop the trauma of people of color having to constantly encounter these as icons that we're lifting up in our public spaces? But also at the same time, how do we not forget that this history happened? Um, and as a Jew, I maybe have a particular way of looking at this. You know, we think about like Elie Wiesel and never forget and how important it is to actually keep um, history alive in each generation so that we can't just obliterate or erase the atrocities of the past. But at the same time, we don't want to be re-traumatizing people. And so I had this idea um, of taking kudzu, which is this quick growing plant that, um, you know, when um, sort of inappropriately released in our beautiful southern forests can cover trees quite quickly in this like blanket of thick leaves uh, I thought, well, why don't we plant kudzu at the base of these statues and just let nature do the work? And I loved this metaphor of bioremediation, meaning um, how uh, plants, in particular, phytoremediation would be in that case, but plants or living living creatures of any kind can kind of help to remove toxicity from a site. Um, and was using that as a metaphor, but also this kind of literal, again, camouflage to try to say like, well, we know what's under there, but we've made it made it green and verdant and beautiful um, instead. Yeah, no, it's really. I mean, it's such a it's a, a resting series of of images and um, you know, fascinating fascinating idea and, and the relationship. Um, yeah, with history and forgetting and nature seems just. I mean, there just seems a lot going on there, right? Because um, you know, when I think of one of the things that this, this called to mind, I'll just say as a, as a viewer, was, um, you know, it's other contexts where nature has kind of take, quote, unquote, taken over, or you have a, a civilization, um, I mean, this happens all over the Americas, where, um, you know, civilizations are, you know, either, you know, through kind of internal processes or in the, in the course of um, 
uh, colonization were uh, suffered horrendous losses and, and their monuments, which were very different. Well, it's, it's a different kind of context. We're talking about monuments, but there was monumental architecture in any case that was um, overtaken by, um, by the natural landscape so that, you know, there would be, have been a, a, a huge temple, important area. And now it's kind of covered in, in vines and kind of slowly being um, reincorporated into the, into the natural landscape. And so, so I think, I think what's, what struck me in any case is this, is this relationship between kind of um, uh, nature and the power of nature and forgetting um, just this idea that, you know, over time uh, the, the landscape kind of re removes any trace in some sense of, of human civilization and, and the, and even injustices or great things that we create that at the end of the day, nature kind of has its way and, um, and there's not much of a trace left. And I'm curious if that was also kind of on your mind, you, you mentioned this tension that, you know, the monuments would be there, but, um, uh, you know, but they'd be covered in camouflage, but eventually when over when nature has its way at, in the end, um, there won't be anything left at all. Yeah. I, many years ago, I read that, um, book, the world without us. And certainly even prior to that, um, you know, I am, I am not a, a, a misanthrope despite the problems that I see with contemporary human society, you know, namely because of these, um, cultural modalities of human exceptionalism and white supremacy and late stage capitalism that we're currently engaging in. But I don't actually like want to see humanity um, disappear. But sometimes I have to tell you that in dark moments, I would have this fantasy of essentially like what it looks like if we if we all were gone. And, um, you know, that idea that the you know, that the buildings would crumble and be overgrown with vines, um, that there is this, like this, um, to me, some hopefulness in that, that there is this ability to heal on a long enough time scale. And for me, the question is really like, you know, how can we in the contemporary moment be most responsible towards that deep future? Um, you know, I think about this idea of seed saving, um, but in a cultural sense, like cultural seed saving or on this like larger sense of biodiversity, like how can we be sure that this diversity of whatever type, right? Human, human languages, maybe human cultures, um, all the different species, the different habitats, how can we ensure that enough of that makes it into the future that it'll have a chance when we actually, um, I hope, can reach a place of essentially remediating the harm that we've done. Yeah, that's an it's it's a it's an interesting tension that's kind of exists in um, the environmental movement and conservation and even in our environmental laws. Is you know, do we think of nature? And this has been a a, a theme that's been visited on earlier. Um, uh, episodes of the podcast, Emma Maris recently, environmental writer. Um, we talked a little bit about this is, is, can we, can we envision a place for humans in the world? You know, there seems to be a, a, uh, a binary of either kind of a human dominated, um, world where, you know, um, uh, the, it's all about people and what we do and, 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 you know, resources that we extract or the kind of alternative of misanthropy, misanthropy and, um, you know, kind of picturing a world without people as, as, as in a kind of idealized state of nature. And, you know, can we come up with a vision where, um, you know, uh, we, we play a different role, <laughs> but we're still around, um, is the, uh, is the question. Yeah. No, I think that that's a great, that's a great uh, frame for discussion because I, I mean, I certainly think that like the idealized view of, um, you know, perfect harmonious nature is in some ways um, just as um, erroneous of you as it is to think about nature as like resources to be extracted. Um, I think that like, again, uh, that there's some complexity in between that is the space that we need to inhabit. Um, and I really think that, you know, we, of course we can do much better 
as human beings in terms of trying to understand what our place may be. You know, that there people spend a lot of time talking about how special we are in the animal kingdom, if they remember at all that we are animals, which of course we are. Um, and you know, how language or tool making, um, or art sets us apart from the rest of the natural world. I think all of these, um, can be debunked in um, certain ways. If you, uh, if you look at our fellow, fellow creatures, um, but at the same time, there is something that's particularly wonderful about a self-conscious species that can respond to its environment um, and make something new. So I think maybe that's part of where, you know, again, like this conversation around a vision and the gaze and observation can come in that, um, you know, the, there's something special about the fact that we can um that we can look at the natural world and respond. But, but I think that it's dangerous when we, when we think of this as something that elevates us above the rest of the natural world, which is why I remind people that when we look at nature, nature looks back, that we are not set apart, but of course are deeply interdependent on this natural world. No matter what sort of technology we have, we're nowhere close to being able to survive independently of our biodiverse planet, you know, and if Elon Musk wants to perpetuate a fantasy that he's going to go live on Mars, like by all means, buddy, get in that spaceship. <laughs> well, it's funny. <laughs> Mars is going to try to kill you. That's what I'm saying. I mean, that, that's the thing. I, 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 I occasionally I'll have friends or, you know, folks will kind of mention uh, so they'll, they'll bemoan the state of the environment, which is bad. You know, we're doing bad things to the environment. Um, and they'll say, well, should we be thinking about colonizing other planets? And I say, look, there is nothing that we could do to this planet that would make it as inhospitable to life as Mars, right? So whatever you're picturing, we're going to be here. <laughs> it's going to be better here. And so we just want to make it as, there is not, the alternative is, is, is just a fantasy. Um, and uh, yeah, I, it's almost a dangerous idea because I think people can get this idea because it makes people less risk averse with what should really be accepted as where we're going to be indefinitely. Correct. And this actually wraps back to that, um, like sort of footnote I made about de-extinction, um, which is that, yes, of course, humans invent incredible technologies and, you know, I wouldn't, it would be so, so foolish of me to say that, like, could we never colonize Mars? Um, of course we can. Of course, though, there, there will be, you know, assuming that we don't um, set ourselves back 10,000 years by, you know, destroying our planet so fully that civilization collapses, you know, there will come a time when we could, um, you know, successfully um, colonize another planet. But exactly what you're saying is I think that it's it, right now, it's too soon and that it becomes a very dangerous idea. It props up this idea that our technology will save us, um, which is the same thing with this idea of de-extinction, you know, that we could bring the mammoths back or bring back the passenger pigeons. Where are we gonna put them? You know, we need to, we need to, we need to start at a deeper level before we can make these kind of surface remediations. Um, and I think that, you know, the idea that our technology is gonna save us. Um, allows people to act in really reckless ways. Um, what's going to save us is changing our culture from the yeah. roots up. Yeah, and um, just to you know, kind of take us back to to another another piece for a second. Um, the um, just speaking of extinction, um, the the work I'm thinking of is music for elephants, and and it also um, uh, this piece in particular. Um, uh, Involves involves sound, which is an important element in in several of your works. Um, and uh, so maybe maybe you could just explain a little bit of what this piece is, and and your interest in sound as a as a kind of artistic media, and 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 as an artist, how you think of the relationship between kind of visual and and audio um, ways of of doing art. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that I mean I'm I'm interested in sound probably for some of the similar reasons that I'm interested in these like other kind of sideways approaches to visuality, which is that, you know, I really want people to have a novel encounter and to be able to be 
you know, rooted in their body in a sense-based way when they are uh, encountering these works of art. And I think that, um, you know, in a, in an especially visually oversaturated environment, sound can be quite effective in doing that. Um, in the case of this project, Music for Elephants, um, if you're look, just looking at it, what you see is a 1921 vintage player piano that's been meticulously restored. Um, and uh, if you're hearing it, what you hear is this kind of um, haunting and lilting score of sort of, um, you know, out of key notes that plays um, in this case, this, you know, the score is on a uh, die cut perforated player piano roll that's played through the pneumatic machinery of this, um, you know, what I like to think of as like the world's first MP3 player. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, the music that you're hearing, if you want to call it music um, is based on uh, data that I got from uh, scientists that work on elephant poaching And it essentially um, is based on an algorithm that predicts what might happen in any future month um, were poaching of African elephants, uh, Loxodonta africana, to increase by only 1.5% annually. And the, I guess I'll just say horrifying thing that I discovered is that if that happens, then elephants are extinct within 25 years. Um, and so the, the, again, this music that's played on um, the keyboard plays uh, a note for each month based on the amount of elephants that might die um, into, this, into this future um, 25 years from now, when then at the end of the score, elephants um, are extinct and the piano falls silent. And of course, then you as the viewer... Um, can't help but notice that these sort of ghostly notes played on this like, you know, player piano are played, of course, all on an ivory keyboard, ivory being um, what is driving the poaching crisis in Africa. Hmm. Wow. So maybe we'll just listen to a a few um, seconds of that clip right now. One of the really interesting um, elements to the um, to the audio kind of um, component of, of this piece is that it unfolds in time, the same way that that extinction unfolds in time. Whereas, with a visual, me- especially a static visual medium, obviously you can have video too. But if you're doing something that is is, is still. Um, you know, that's a snapshot, right? It's, it's, it's a moment in time, um, even if it can be evocative of other times, um, at, for example, with Amber Archive. Um, but um, but the, with, with sound, the piece kind of has a temporal existence. Is, is that part of what, what attracts you to this, um, to, 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 this to, to sound, to integrating sound into, into, into works? Yeah, I think certainly that idea of... Um the way that it can help you enter into a meditative state, you know, certainly uh, as an artist, especially one who works oftentimes in public settings, I'm very aware of all of the, you know, other information that's out there that's competing for people's attention. Um, But I myself find that, you know, the most potent art um, experiences happen when I'm able to kind of slow down and enter into, you know, in some senses, an alternate um, way of experiencing. And so I do think that there's something that can happen with sound work, um, that really can, you know, help us take a beat and think about things in a new way. Hmm. So just maybe stepping back and thinking about the, your, your work, you know, kind of broadly, um, there's one question to just maybe to start us off with this is, you know, when you approach a project like Music for Elephants or Birds Watching or any of the other um, works that we've been talking about, 
Um, do you come to those problems as a with a with a message to communicate? Is there a formal problem that you're interested in addressing? Are there are there do you come you know um, thinking about materials first um, and 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 working with the material and then you're you're drawn into an idea? Is there a particular way that your your the, your process unfolds? And I'm, I guess I'm kind of getting at this interaction of the the, the conceptual element, which is you know always very clearly present, and then the kind of the physical manifestation that as an artist you, you bring to life? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I think that for me, um, there is not like a uh, rubric by which I make my work. So it's not like I always start with one thing and progress through a series of steps to another. I would say more that it's sort of um, organically arising out of a very um, deeply research-driven process, which is, you know, the, the engine of that is my unending curiosity for this, like, you know, fascinating biological world that we live on. Um, so, uh, but you do, I think you make a really good point, which is that there, there is always this like synchronization between the concept and the material that is very important to me. And certainly is not something that, um, this does not arise by accident. That is all very, very carefully put together piece by piece. And I like to think of it almost as, um, you know, braiding strands together. So I want the materiality of the work to um, have a, a natural relationship with the concept, um, you know, that there's a sort of material poetry that's going on. And oftentimes there is some sort of like alchemy or transformation that's happening. Um, and, you know, I, I like to think about this idea when I was talking about wanting to make work that was accessible to anyone, but oftentimes I'm doing that through processes that have never been done before. So, um, that there's this kind of, uh, you know, it, it, there's a, there's a research-based process, not only in the concept, but in the materiality itself. And a lot of that is what makes it fun for me. I sometimes feel like I know, um, that a project is right, or it's the one that I'm going to work of work on when I feel a little, uh, what's the, like a, you know, like a free song about like, can I, can I actually accomplish this or not? Like, this is like, it's not something that I am sure can be made. Um, and so, you know, even with the player piano piece, that was, um, nine months of working that out, um, with the Amber, it was a couple of years, honestly, of collecting specimens and trying different methods, um, I'm engaged in a project right now where I'm growing sculptures inside of pearl bearing oysters that, you know, took, um, it was something I thought about for years. And then it took me 18 months to even sort of like figure out, was this really possible? Um, so, so this, this process where I'm coming up with the idea for the piece and then figuring out if it can actually be accomplished is oftentimes, you know, many years long. Hmm. Yeah, no, it's really, it's fascinating. The pearl piece sounds really, really cool too. So I look forward to, uh, to seeing that. Um, you know, can even, even more broadly, I mean, obviously you think a lot about the relationship of art to the, to the broader world and how, um, how your art relates to these, you know, these questions of, of environmentalism and climate change and, and biodiversity loss. Um, and you know, I, I would just be curious about a, your thoughts on a couple couple of, of of elements of that interaction. So, so one is the relationship that you have to the um, the broader art world, and maybe uppercase <laughs> art and world in that in that sentence. So, you know, this is the world of museums and galleries and auctions, and you know, the stuff that's that's you know kind of covered in the in the newspapers. And it's a world that's really, really, really consumerist in its orientation. Um, there's a lot of display of wealth. Uh, there's a lot of inequality, and and there's a peculiarity, I think. Um, uh, uh, that again, I'd just be curious to hear your thoughts on on the relationship of politics um, to that uh, uppercase art world, um, where in a way it can almost become part of the currency of exchange. Um, it, it, it just becomes it, it joins the uh, as one other element of the of the of the coin of the realm, so to speak. You know, Warhol talked about business art, or you know, you have this kind of. Um, you know, there's, there's lots of, of ways that artists interact with, with that commercial culture. And I'm curious, yeah, how do you, how do you see your work or your, 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 um, you know, your, your existence as an artist vis-a-vis -vis that world? Do, do you, 
do you try to ignore it or escape it or critique it? Or, or how do you see yourself in relationship to that world? Uh, great question. I think, I mean, I try not to ignore anything in the world. Um, so I'm certainly very aware of this aspect of the art world, you know, the sort of like, um, oh, are you bored with collecting Louis Vuitton bags? Try contemporary art. Um, it's not, uh, it's, you know, the art world is a really big place, um, thankfully. It's certainly not where I see um, my work having a place or relevance. Um, you know, just like, pretty much every other aspect of human culture, uh, capitalism got its fangs into the art world, you know, and we could, it's, you know, easy enough to trace the history of how that happened. Um, you know, at this moment, um, at certain levels, like artists, certain types of art and certain types of artists are traded like commodities. They have, you know, great return values <laughs> in the secondary market. Um, but that's a really different way of working than what I'm interested in. And I think it would be a shame if people were to give up on the idea of art simply because part of it has been turned into a tool um, for capitalism. And they're actually like, you know, pretty discrete parts of the art world in that like oftentimes they don't overlap at all. Um, so what I'm really interested in uh, is, is, um, is culture change. And so for me, uh, you know, I want to be able to try to use the other parts of the art world where art becomes a tool for communication um, with people. And, you know, that's, that's what's, you know, infinitely more interesting to me. Yeah. And so, so of course that takes us to kind of another interesting area here, which is, which is the relationship of art and activism and communication and the ability of art to, um, to change people's minds and to, um, you know, bring them, bring new ideas to, and, and so on. And, and I'm curious about your, your thoughts about this. I mean, my, I'm kind of a, personally of two minds where I've, I've always, as just a viewer, <laughs> um, you know, I, I've found to have like lots of positive experiences um, in, encountering art and, and leaving be changed afterwards and having different perspectives. But I've always been a little skeptical of um, the relationship of art to politics in part because um, – you know, there, there could be bad politics in art too, right? There's been, you know, propaganda um, uh, has been used to, to forward really horrendous ideas, including, um, well, it depends on how you would define art, I guess, but stuff that looks a lot like art. And, um, and so, yeah, so I'm curious about um, how you see the, the role of art and politics or the role of art in communication and, and whether you think there's anything inherently kind of... Um, truth tracking in, in art, you know, that the experience of interacting with art inherently, um, leads you to a, to a better or more clear version of the world, or is it, um, or is it just a, a matter of disrupting old thoughts and, and then it's up to the viewer in some sense to, um, um, to do with that, what, um, what they will. Hmm. Um, so I'm definitely a believer in this idea that people say like, um, everything is inherently political or that the personal is political. You know, as someone who identifies as a as a queer Jew, I think it would be uh, foolish of me to ignore the um, sort of necessity for us to all be participants in a political realm in whatever ways we can. Um, but I also think that... Um, you're right that there's not there, there's not or there shouldn't be such a simple relationship between art and politics. I do th occasionally there are like intentionally, deliberately, explicitly political parts of my work. You know, there's been projects where there was an element of it where we were asking people to sign a petition around a particular piece of legislation. So this is oftentimes when I've worked in concert with the Natural Resources Defense Council, where I'm artist in residence. Um, you know, and sometimes there are like specific pieces of legislation that I'm interested in changing. You know, there, there are wildlife trade laws that are very relevant to um, whether or not elephants will be extinct in, you know, X number of decades. Um, I don't, however, think, though, that art should um, become like a literalized tool of politics. I think that, you know, you hinted towards this, that like, is that art anymore? That it, it, it probably becomes propaganda, but it's not, you know, there's like a, there's a, there's a, 
a sort of continuum that I see in my own work. And I don't feel limited to have to occupy only a single part of that continuum. So, um, you know, I make everything from, you know, detailed and diminutive works that really are most appropriately experienced in um, an art museum or a gallery. But I also, um, you know, paint 30 foot banners that are and help to organize, um, you know, blockades in downtown Chicago with Extinction Rebellion um, in the past. So I think that like for me, I I I don't feel the need to choose one part of the spectrum as a person who also identifies as an artist. I think I can be explicitly political and have an activist practice and also, you know, just you feel out what's right for the work. You know, sometimes um, sometimes the work is really has a direct political engagement and sometimes it doesn't. But at least for me, it is always about culture change. And I do think that like that's the role um, of art and artists is to think about how, you know, when we have a, a, a contemporary moment that requires all of us to rise in whatever ways that we can, Um, You know, that's the role of art is to think about how we actually begin to change these base engines of culture, which we do in all different forms, right? You're a writer, you have a podcast, um, you know, we have uh, poets and um, philosophers and people making big Hollywood movies and also, you know, artists that we're all sort of that that's our that that's our role is to help people write what the next chapter in human culture will be and to suggest that things might be able to be otherwise. Well, that's, well, that's really fantastic um, set of thoughts. And this has been a super um, interesting conversation. I really um, appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. And, and of course, all of the wonderful work that you do that I encourage our listeners to experience in person whenever they have an opportunity and, and to check out um, in, the, in the links that we'll put in the description. So, so thanks so much for, uh, for joining me for this conversation today, Jenny. That was really my pleasure. Thank you for the um, fun conversation. And listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, let us know. You can give us a like, a rating, subscribe to the podcast, and follow us on social media. It'd be great to hear from you. Till next time.